Welcome to Triangle 411, the pulse that moves the Triangle world today. It's a vibrant collection of stories, medical breakthroughs, what's trending, social good, events, and boundless other adventures. A conversation pit of comedians, authors, chefs, sports figures, experts, the common and the uncommon. Here's the host of Triangle 411, Mary Innsbrucker. Hi, friends. Today we're talking about leadership. There is an element of it in our everyday lives, be it parent, coach, teacher, community volunteer, and certainly in our occupations. Tony Robbins says leadership is the ability to inspire a team to achieve a certain goal. Inspire. But how does one inspire? We have someone here today to help us dissect this concept. Ronald Heifetz is among the world's foremost authorities on the practice and teaching of leadership. He speaks extensively and advises heads of governments, businesses, and nonprofit organizations across the globe. In fact, in 2016, President Juan Manuel Santos of Colombia highlighted Heifetz's advice in his Nobel Peace Prize Lecture. Heifetz founded the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard Kennedy School, and he played a pioneering role in establishing leadership as an area of study and education in the United States. His first book, Leadership Without Easy Answers, is a classic in the field and one of the 10 most assigned course books at Harvard and right here at Duke. Indeed, students such as presidents and prime ministers utilize his leadership practices. Ronald also co-authored the best-selling Leadership on the Line, Staying Alive Through the Dangers of Change. <laughs> we know about that. Along with Marty Linsky, and that book serves as one of the primary go-to books on leadership. We are fortunate to have him with us today. Please join me in welcoming him. Hello, Ron, and thanks for being here. Real pleasure, Mary. Well, I think this is going to help so many people out there in our audience. And I, I want to start by letting you know that Triangle 411 likes to go off the map a little bit, so to speak, and delve into the arteries of a subject. So much like your book, we're going to go beyond the usual. So let's start by getting right into some nitty gritty with leadership during the pandemic. Talk about radioactive. Why did some leaders survive that and some did not, Ron? Yeah, gosh, the pandemic is a just an extraordinary example and a painful example, but an extraordinary example of what I would call an adaptive challenge, which is a kind of problem where that develops the, a kind of problem that requires people to develop new capacity. And often it's the kind of problem that you can't solve just through expert solutions so that there's not just the kind of a straightforward authoritative solution. It requires uh, widespread engagement of the people themselves who have to own the problem because they've got to be part of the solution. And the pandemic really illustrates that kind of problem because uh, um, until there was a vaccine, and even now that there is a vaccine, 
you know, um, uh, but certainly for that first year, uh, everybody, all 7 billion people all around the world had to make new adaptations to their life. They had to figure out how to parent with kids at home. They had to figure out how to teach school. They had to figure out how to keep a business open, you know, how to, how to make, how to keep a government open and how, how to, how to help coordinate life so that, uh, so that it reduces the death rate. And, uh, and obviously it is placed extraordinary strain on the healthcare system, um, uh, in which so many heroic people through their, you know, their hearts and minds and, 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 and bodies, uh, into the breach to, uh, take care of people, um, night and day, um, at the risk of dying themselves or burning out, um, during the pandemic. So, I mean, there's a lot to learn. One of the things to learn is if you compare the death rates in different countries, the countries that have the highest death rates are the countries that have the most distrust in the society. And the countries where that were, that have the lowest death rates are countries where people tend to trust their institutions. And so they're willing to have coordinated collective behavior um, uh, because they, even if they sharply disagree, um, uh, as the different parties do in New Zealand or in Australia, um, nevertheless, uh, <clears throat> um, during the pandemic, people trusted their authorities to shut down when they needed to shut down, to open up gradually as they needed to, to regulate the borders of immigration and, and tourism, you know, and, and, and then to figure out how to buffer people's pain so that it helps people stay afloat. But the death rate in those countries was really low compared to our country in which the distrust level is so high that uh, it made it extremely difficult for people in authority to coordinate life because people say, well, who are you to tell me what to do? And I don't trust you. And, and, and the product of that trust is that a lot of people died with their distrust. You know, uh, I would say, at least a half a million people died unnecessarily in our country because it's, of the it's distrust. All that, yeah, it's all that about change. People really fight change, and that's a lot of what your books are about. In fact, uh, from a Gartner change impact model study, on average, each employee experiences at least 39 changes per year. 4% being large scale and 96% being small. So we've seen a lot of change movement in the pandemic. We all know the change management charts of denial, frustration, the valley of despair, et cetera. Yeah. But in your book, Leadership on the Line, you write, the stability of change depends on having the people with the problem internalize the change itself. Can you explain? Well, again, the pandemic is a good example. You know, um, you couldn't work the problem if people didn't weren't willing to own the problem at the local level within their own lives. And, and then they would have to make adjustments themselves, figure out how much risk they were willing to tolerate, figure out how to, how to take care of the kids, how to, how, to, how to juggle life in ways that they didn't have to juggle life before. Because, you know, you could send your kids off to school or you could um, – so um, if people reject owning the problem, if the people keep expecting the problem to be solved for them by somebody on high, as if they can just go about their lives, then the problem is going to just persist. The problem is not going to go away. So, you know, there are a lot of problems in life where you can just turn to somebody and, and get it solved. You know, you can call a car mechanic and fix a car. You can take your kid with an ear infection to a doctor 
and get a prescription for, you know, for um, amoxicillin. I mean, there are a lot of problems that we can solve because we have the expertise and the know-how. But there are a lot of problems that require people to change their ways, where the people themselves are part of the problem, and therefore the people themselves need to be part of the solution. And that's what we were referring to in that book, is that, you know, when people need to be part of the solution, they have, got, they have to own the problem in the first place. And leadership then requires engaging people um, in a way that uh, helps them see that, you know, they really need to participate. They need to own that. That's the nature of their citizenship in the organization or in the, or in the society or in the community or even in the family. The nature of their citizenship in that uh, in that group is to uh, to uh, take on their, their own measure of responsibility. Now, let's look at a couple leadership styles. I'd like to get your thoughts on this. You have the Martin Luther King Jr., who led by inspiration, and the Hitler, who led by fear, yet both obtained leadership status. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I don't think Adolf Hitler practiced any leadership. I think there's a real difference between misleading people and leading people. Um, Leading people, in my terms, is getting people to face the music of the changes that they need to make in order to prosper and thrive in a changing world. And helping people dig their head in the sand or come up with fake remedies uh, isn't leadership. It's not, it's like, think of medicine. I started off as a doctor. You know, you're not practicing medicine when you give people fake remedies and charge them a lot of money for a fake cure. You know, you're practicing medicine when you're actually trying to help people face into the problem in their lives and either prescribe a remedy if you really can, or if you can't, then help them make adjustments in their lives so that they can stay as healthy as they can. Um, it isn't, being a charlatan is not the same as being a doctor. Um, you, you may even have a medical degree, but you're no longer practicing medicine when you're practicing being a charlatan. And I think what Hitler did was he gave people a lot of a lot of fake remedies, um, <clears throat> scapegoats, you know, get rid of all the gypsies and the Jews and our problems are going to be solved, our economic problems. But that, what, that wasn't true. I mean, the economic depression the Germans went through in the 1920s had nothing to do with gypsies or, or Jews. You know, it had to do with much more complex economic forces that engulfed the whole world in a global depression at the time, including in the United States. So, um, it, now, unfortunately, when people are in pain, they tend to turn to their authorities yearning for solutions. And that makes them vulnerable to people selling certainty. And when people are, are, are frightened and anxious about the changes in their world, uh, certainty sells. And, uh, and so we frequently see charlatans emerge selling certainty rather than uh, helping people <clears throat> discover their own resourcefulness to um, uh, to make the changes that are needed for progress to be achieved. So, I mean, I think King helped the country face into the contradiction in our own values that we say we stand for equality and freedom. We even say equal justice under the law on the Supreme Court. You know, we, we deeply believe as a country in freedom and equality. Uh, and yet we're not living that way. And, and, and all of King's efforts were to try to make visible for people the contradiction in our own values, 
That is we, uh, between our values and our actions. We say we stand for equality and freedom, and yet we create these structures in which a lot of people are deeply disadvantaged and, uh, and kept out, um, even prevented from voting. So um, uh, King wasn't trying to um, sell people on uh, his particular or his personal view. He was trying to get people to own their own problem as Americans. As he said, you know, his dream wasn't his own. It was a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. Um, and, and that's leadership, is getting people to face their own contradictions, their own values, uh, and the gaps between their values and how they're living so that they can begin to close that gap and, and live, live up to their values. Um, that's very different than what, what uh, Hitler did. Now, having a following is not the same as being a leader. Having a following is having a following. A lot of people can get a following, but that doesn't mean you're mobilizing people to uh, to meet the adaptive challenges they're facing in their in their lives or organizations. So, how do you think leadership has uh, evolved, say, from the 1950s to the current day? I mean, the, we talk about change, and you know, holy cow, what a change in leadership styles and and abilities, et cetera. What, what's your thoughts on that? I, I think that I think that the challenges that we're facing are evolving fast. Um, some of the cha- some of the challenges we're facing are persisting. You know, have been around in our country for hundreds of years, and certainly since the fifties. Uh, challenges of inequity of various kinds. You know, gap between rich and poor. Um, people feeling left out. Um, uh, the, the, the gap uh, of opportunity for women or, or, or minorities. Um, so there are, a lot of, there are a lot of challenges that, have remained, that, that persist for which it requires us to continue to do the adaptive work we need to live up to our values as a nation. Um, now, styles of leadership, tactics, and strategy always have to be tailored to the situation. You know, how to lead a a nonprofit in a small town is very different than leading a multinational company from a high position of authority. Uh, practicing leadership from the streets in organizing people or in your um, apartment building to pull people together to help, you know, one of your neighbors who's who's in trouble. All of those acts of leadership um, require different, you know, different uh, approaches and and to some degree somewhat different skills. So um, people have been actually practicing the kind of leadership I'm talking about for forever. Uh, a lot of times they don't get noticed because a lot of times people practice leadership um, without having positions of authority. You know, they practice leadership from in the middle or, or from, or from uh, outside or in their families or neighborhoods. Um, not necessarily, or in their schools, not necessarily because they gain a high position of political or, or business authority. And we see a lot of people in high positions of authority who don't practice leadership. So one of the ideas I've been uh, um, working on with people over the years is, is it's important to distinguish leadership from authority. A lot of people high, have authority and don't practice leadership. And a lot of people practice leadership without authority or beyond their authority. You know, they just see a problem in their midst. 
and they pull people together to work that problem together. And that's leadership. Now, now here's an aspect I want to touch on with you because I've seen leaders accomplish goals, period. And then I've seen leaders accomplish goals while developing a team that would go to the mat for them. Is there a secret ingredient to be in to being an effective leader while at the same time a likable one? Yeah, you know, I think it's really important to try hard to be likable in the sense that you're warm and personable and respectful of people, that you're listening to people, that they feel seen. And all of those things make you likable. And, and, and when they feel that you can speak to their experience and their concerns, you know, they're going to tend to like you. Um, and then one then has to challenge people in a way that um, helps people realize that the challenge that you're making to them may, be, may feel personal, but you're not attacking them as people. You're not, you know, you're just... You're just saying, you know, we've got a we've got a dilemma we've got to work on here together. So and 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 you might be challenging people hard to do so, um, uh, but uh, it, it doesn't have to be um, obnoxious. You know, um, it can be painful for people to have to absorb. People may push back at you and be really angry with you, but um, but it, it helps that uh, to not not take that pushback personally and not start getting into a defensive posture where you start lashing out back. Uh, Cause the, when people do lash out at you, even if, even if they liked you before, it's just because what you represent to them are some serious challenges and they, you know, people resist losses. They don't, they don't want to have to, they don't want to have to absorb a loss. Um, so, so they'll push back and it's important not to personalize that. Um, uh, so that so that your defenses are defending um, the idea, but not not uh, attacking people. And I, I think actually one of the big lessons that uh, President Biden learned as a senator in being able to collaborate with people across the aisle was to 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 not make it personal, you know, and that he could passionately disagree, and at the same time deeply respect his opponents in the, in, in, in the Republican party and that they could be friends, real friends in the way that Orrin Hatch, you know, a deeply uh, religious uh, and, 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 and deeply convicted conservative could be true friends with, with Edward Ted Kennedy, who was on the opposite end of the political spectrum, you know, and they were deep friends and that, that kind of civility, you know, has is, is getting lost in our current political culture as people have sort of unleashed permission to be mean to each other. Um, I don't think you need to be mean and I don't think you need to be obnoxious to practice leadership. In fact, I think frequently those are tools of misleading people because what it does is it galvanizes an angry constituency. It creates sort of a mob psychology and that certainly may make you feel real significant because they're cheering you on but I don't think it helps move the needle of solving our collective problems as a community. Okay, we're almost out of time here. So I just want to throw a couple, I call them quick flashcards, just a couple of questions where maybe you answer in a few sentences. I know it's going to be tough, but just a couple of sentences on let's do three things. Advice to the impatient leader. To the impatient leader? 
Correct. Like someone who wants to get yeah. some, you know, the goal over the finish line yeah. and it's not yes. happening uh, fast I, enough. I, I, I think it's really important to figure out how to keep the fire in your belly alive and burning and not have it burn you out. Let it burn slowly over a lifetime. If you, if you, if you succumb to your impatience, then you're, you're moving at your need for speed, not at the rate at which people can actually change. And in leading, you've got to track the pace at which and the rate at which people can absorb significant changes in their lives. And, and your speed has to track how fast can they move. Now, you may try to, you know, push the pedal down and accelerate and try to push them harder. But ultimately, you've got to go at the speed they can move. And that may mean that you can't get done what you want to get done on your watch. But you might be able to push the ball down the field and then you and then you turn it over to somebody else. A lot of people make deep mistakes by trying to because they're really feeding their own impatience. They're not serving the work itself, and 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 they're they're not respecting sufficiently the pains of change that they're asking people to absorb, and therefore their pacing is all off. Okay, two the second flash card. Who comforts the leader while they are comforting others? Great question. I. Uh, I was just suggesting to a group of uh, people in Mexico in a program that I'm teaching in by Zoom that uh, we need we need uh, three different ways to anchor ourselves, because when you're busy holding everybody else, somebody's got to be holding you. And I think there are three different ways to think about it. First of all, I think we each need confidants, family, friends, people who we can pour our heart to, people who don't care primarily about the issue at stake, but really care about us and that they can help put us back together again at the end of the day so that we're ready to go back into uh, the fray. And second, people need not only confidants, people need sanctuary. And I think there are a lot of different kinds of sanctuaries. There's church, there's a synagogue, there's mosque, there's temple, but there's also uh, a meditation room. There's also a park. Um, there's a, a friend's kitchen table where you routinely have a cup of coffee. Um, there's uh, the place where you go for a walk along a creek. Um, I'm not promoting any particular sanctuary, but I think we all need one. And I think these aren't luxuries. It's kind of like if you were to move to Boston, you'd buy a winter coat. A lot of people think they can practice leadership without anchoring themselves. They, they think these are expendable luxuries. I don't have time for it. But I think it's absolutely necessary to anchor oneself with confidants, with sanctuary. And at the th- and the third element is practices. I think we need daily practices or at least weekly practices that can take us out of the fray and restore us to ourselves. Those practices might be, you know, writing poetry, playing music. Um, it might be uh, going to the gym, going for a run. Um, it could be picking up your kids from school. For me, that was a critical set of practices for, you know, 15 years that kept me anchored um, until they were, you know, able to uh, go off on their own. So I, I think we need all three of these things so that we're getting held and we're holding ourselves uh, at the very same time that we then have to face outward and hold everybody else. 
Excellent. Okay, last question. And this is going to be tough in, in, for a short answer, I know, but your book, Leadership on the Line, is 252 pages. What would you say is the one takeaway people must know to lead? Well, I would say um, you got to keep returning to your ability to, uh, to love the people that you're trying to engage in change. And, and from the love comes care and respect in listening at the same time as, as you will challenge them in the same way they would challenge a lot of people that you love. Um, but I think, uh, I think ultimately our desire to make life better for people uh, comes out of our uh, natural impulse to, um, to love others. Wonderful. We will close on that. This has been a powerful show. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thank you, Mary. Very, very informative. But now it is time to high five and say goodbye. We are out of time, folks. I am Mary Innsbrucker for Triangle 411. Today's pocket, be kind to others.